welcome to Beyond the Facade podcast. Dun, dun, dun. Welcome back. Um, Thank you for listening. And we have Sabrina. (laughs) So um, today's episode three, and um, we're going to bring you a very interesting place that you either know it or you never heard about it at all. It depends on what generation you were born in. You know, some more prevalent than others would remember this place. Yes. So it's called Sybil uh, Brand Institute for Women. And the reason why we chose it was because partially it's another institution. Uh, well, now it's an abandoned institution. So that makes it more interesting. But it is another institution in, in Los Angeles County part of the LA County jail system. And that's, that's been an interest and will be an interest of here in the podcast, um, institutional settings. So that was one thing. And then we wanted to touch on the history of this place and then the paranormal component of that place. And as far as Sybil Brand, it's located, and I looked up at the, I looked at the address, you gave me the address yesterday, mm-hmm. which was um, 4500 City Terrace Drive. So it's kind of the borderline between City Terrace, the city, and in Monterey Park. It's right on that cusp area. So it's kind of hidden. Yeah. Some addresses have one or the other. I wouldn't suggest you go look for it. You may not even know what you're looking for. <laughs> you could go. You may not even know what you're looking for. But, and we'll explain why at the end, but uh, I knew it was up there because I used to go to school in that area. So I remember trying to look for it. It's just kind of hard to find it if you don't actually kind of go in deeper. Yeah. Because it's kind of on a, on top of a hill. hill. Yeah. It's not a hillside, but it's on top of a hill. And my only experience going there was in the dark and not driving. So finding it again was a little bit of a a, a task. Yeah. There's two ways to go in. Um, there's a back way that has like probably either maybe it's for like loading or something. I don't know. And then the front way, which had the parking lot and you could tell where the visitors were at. So, so yeah, simple brand. If we're, we're going to break down some of the history of it and some, some stories, different things um, on this place. And just cause it's really interesting. So you know, hopefully you enjoy the podcast. So we'll, we'll start um, first with the history and Sabrina's going to start with that part. Okay, Sybil Brand. So Sybil Brand Institute was um, constructed and opened in 1963. Uh, previously, before this institute, um, it, it was the women's jail, which is what Sybil Brand is, the women's jail was held on Terminal Island. But before that even, it was on the 13th floor, one floor dedicated to women in the Hall of um, the Hall of Justice. And it was just one room, one floor dedicated to women. The Sybil Brand is, Institute is named after uh, the philanthropist Sybil Brand herself, who advocated for a better jail. Uh, she saw the the Hall of Justice, the one floor um, where the women were being held at, and the it was just atro- atrocious. It it was overcrowded. 
women were only showering like once a week, um, she knew something had to be done. So she pushed and pushed and she was able to get the women to be transferred to Terminal Island. And just to uh, go interject on there, the Hall of Justice was the main place where all the courts were, trials, courts were held. Before all the new courts that were built now, there's several courts all over. This was a main um, courthouse for you know most people to go there before all the other ones were built later in time. That place had, of course, held the jail. And then the, the older jail was also the one in Lincoln Heights. But so those were some of the early places that people were kept when they got arrested. Yes. Yes. And so um, she got them to Terminal Island, which was better than the 13th floor of the Hall of Justice. Uh, It still wasn't good enough. Uh, She is still overcrowded. It was not viable for um, so many people that were there. So she pushed and pushed and advocated. And again, to her own uh, detriment, she had health issues due to all the stress that she underwent trying to get a institute built for these women and eight years later she was successful and it is what we knew to be Sybil Brand Institute in Monterey Park. So why did the the 13th floor trip you out because you, uh, the it's funny that you kind of well you know superstitious I guess but the 13th <laughs> floor of General Hospital was also the jail ward so I think they kept 13 floors for those things I don't know. Yeah, I, I remember one time someone talking about Harbor UCLA way back in the day, and they specifically said that they had their child on the 13th floor, which was like the psych ward, which I don't know or believe or whatever, but there's just something about the 13th floor that, you know, it's kind of mystic. And yeah, and I wanted to, you know, put that out there because it's the 13th floor. Yeah, we do hear people say that some buildings don't have a 13th floor, but that's a whole another thing. <laughs> yeah, for another day. So you were saying last that she she advocated to the women to Terminal Island and then finally was able to, after eight years? After eight years, a heart attack and ulcers, she was able to um, establish Sybil Brand if I remember reading properly, it was like $6.1 million to construct the structure. Um, this would house women who were either short-termers, so like people that had misdemeanors and doing a short-term, like maybe a year for petty petty theft, petty, um, petty crimes, or as well, it would hold women who were waiting trial mm-hmm. to be sentenced and either finish their term there or go on to the other, the only prison that they had for women at that time. And um, she, at Terminal Island, she did mention that the smell of the canneries was so, so extensive that it was really not a a good place for the ladies to be. Another reason why she advocated um, for another building. And if the canneries, can you imagine over there in Terminal Island, waking right. up to yeah. that Very tuna. Well, and... You're in San Pedro. <laughs> you could, you could, you were able to smell <clears> it <throat> time. Yeah. Living in the area. But um, 
you mentioned that she was into she was actually you know a wealthy <clears throat> and she i think she married somebody of high importance and then she her job was to inspect several buildings so that's kind of how she got into the mix of advocating right yeah she was in articles that i read they wanted to call her uh, a playgirl meaning like her family was well to do her father her husband she really didn't have to do anything she could have mm -hmm. just done nothing or just been a socialite and and not um look to charity work however it it's documented that she was into charity work at a young age from like 12 and um she continued throughout her entire life and eventually she uh she worked at the licensing uh the business and licensing commission and part of her job was to inspect different institutions and that's what got her started <clears throat> excuse me started with um the women and advocating for their conditions i just thought that was really admirable even though i mean she, she was advocating for another jail which nobody wants another jail no but i mean at, during that time she wanted it a better place or yeah wanted like more rehabilitation as a exactly and she did focus on, or she attempted to focus on, she had some programs set in for them to help um, maybe not rehabilitate, but um, in hopes to reduce recidivism. Yeah, I mean, this was what, 1963, you say that she op it opened up? Yes, that's you know, correct. You know, we're barely starting to see what people need that are in prison the past 10 years. So imagine in the 60s, I mean, they didn't have as much, you know, information on how it prison impacts people or why they even go there as much as today, of course. Exactly. But, or the stigma of being a woman who has been incarcerated. Right. And, um, like, now, you know, seeing all this, and even when I had done a research on the California Youth Authority, before that, you kind of just seen only like, or had this idea that, you know, boys were getting in trouble or part of this stuff. And you never really thought about girls, especially in the early 19th century or whatever it was, getting in trouble. But it's like, it's never, it, it, it happened. You know, there was reasons that things were, it, it was going on for women just as much as men for ve maybe very different reasons as far as crime goes. But, um, it's just always kind of been in the shadows. Yes, definitely. Especially because in the turn of the century and even up till most recently, um, our roles as, as far as gender is concerned were two separate things. And this is outside of prison, but just in general. So um, you can imagine a lot of crimes that may have happened to women, uh, sex crimes, for instance, you know, incest or rape maybe during those times they were forced to rape, uh, to marry their rapist or to keep it hidden if it were in the family, because that stuff is a lot more taboo than it is today. So seeing women and <clears throat> seeing women in prison was much of a smaller thing in comparison to men back then or seeing them in the jail, there was a need for it. And thankfully, um, even though we, we don't want to see women in jail, thankfully they were taken out of, the horrible conditions of the 13th floor uh, over yeah. there in the hall of justice 
So let's go into what Sybil brand, why was it different? What did they offer um, to these ladies once they moved them over there? Well, they boasted there was better living conditions. However, many articles, if you listen to um, the reporters who spoke with women, they mentioned that the conditions were not that great, especially toward the end yeah. of Sybil brand. Yeah. Uh, they did uh, have some vocational training. They had classes in typing. They had cosmetology classes. Uh, any kind of uh, vocation of oh, vocations that you would expect a woman to do in those times. Because remember, guys, we're talking about the 60s, 60s, 70s. <clears throat> she had kind of like a, a motto, if you'd say, like women deserve dignity and a nice appearance. And that's why she pushed through having the cosmetology uh, the vocations. Beauty salon. <laughs> the beauty salon. Which were beauty salons, yes. Yeah, so 1960s. I mean, I guess it's it's always there. It's just funny how the, that's highlighted. Women's worth are based on the way they look. Right, right, yeah. Or yeah. their self-esteem is solely based on the way they look. Right. You know, we found a, uh, some interesting... Um, articles that kind of tie back to the the they the appearance and in that beauty salon during the the time I thought were interesting so um we could talk about the the first article which is the can makeup serve a foundation for a better life (laughs) (laughs) they try to be funny in that one huh yeah um did um that that article is pretty heavy. Makeup for a better life. Can you imagine? Can you imagine your 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 personal makeup being critiqued, basically uh, equating you to your worth and your worth as like a, an employable person? I would never have a job because I like heavy makeup. The, the bold makeup. So I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can you imagine? though? Oh, I think it's yeah. it's hard for people to imagine nowadays because what we're in 2021. And yeah. a lot of the, the newer generations, they things are so much different. There's so much more advocacy for people to live and be who, who they want to be and dress and Not just be, look at the whole makeup community. Like yes, it's a whole different world. Can you imagine though? At one time, that was considered vulgar, or a specific kind of makeup was vulgar and and potentially unemployable. So talk about what they mention in there that. Because there was a, a famous makeup artist that would go monthly to teach um, classes on, you know, doing your eyeliner, blush, and all that, which is cool. Like, you know, good to learn, like, the techniques, right? But her, her look was very conservative or, I guess, basic compared to maybe some of the ladies that had their own their own liking. Because me- they mentioned that there. Victoria was her last Jackson. name Jackson? It was Victoria Jackson? um she she was the makeup maven to beverly hills so she was putting makeup on those women that had money and they went for a much more uh conservative and demure kind of look whereas the women who were uh incarcerated at sybil brand in the article they mentioned these women having really thin eyebrows and that super eyebrows oh my god <laughs> let's not talk about eyebrows i feel attacked i feel attacked we looked at the year it's 94 so like i know that that year people were plucking and shaving off their eyebrows 
But maybe in Beverly Hills they weren't. So that's something I didn't know. Maybe they were not in Beverly Hills. But they I don't think so. I don't know. I think they were going for a more natural look. In the 90s, I would say mainstream that eyebrows thinner were more in. Because if you even look at stars like Britney Spears and other like movie stars, their eyebrows were noticeably thinner than they are now. But they might have not been shaving them. I'm imagining them looking at the ladies, they shaved them and they put the line, you know. I was one of those ladies (laughs) or teens in the 90s. I had a line and it was round and it was just a line so and yes criticizing that look in the article they were criticizing them and not just criticizing them saying derogatory like sediments toward them just that you know they would look better if they didn't shave their eyebrows and basically saying that they're completely unemployable because of the way they look and their choices of the blue eyeshadow and the but heavy lipstick. The ladies in the article were like, well, that's just not, that's something that they're basic or this is what I like. I know how to do my makeup. Like, they were kind of, in a way, defending themselves. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But uh, the art, the person who wrote, who wrote the article just seemed kind of um, picking fun at them or picking at them specifically because of their makeup choices. Now, who in the 1990s had thin eyebrows? And blue eyeshadow and dark lipstick. Was that everyone? I, I don't know. Blue eyeshadow was like 70s lowrider girls, not 90s. Yeah. However, you know, like right now, the 90s uh, fashion is in. So every so many years, it comes back again. I remember doing my eyeshadow like bright sky, baby bluish color. And it's obnoxious, especially because I have small eyes. So I made my eyes look smaller but back then I didn't know anything about makeup came out but I don't remember like if it was like I don't know but I remember like I guess you're right the blue might have had a rotation going yeah um going in head out through the generations I guess they did it did it certainly did so yeah it, it was interesting that you know, this lady, which, I, you know, I like the idea that she was going in there and, you know, doing a beauty class. There's nothing wrong with that. No. It's interesting how the person that wrote the article was just kind of judgmental on the lady's makeup. I mean, again, it was because, you know, they're seeing this lady from Beverly Hills that was used to putting very conservative makeup on, you know, women and as opposed to maybe the underworld that used different types of makeup that would, um, they weren't used to and the, it, it's I believe it to be a cultural thing and not just that but uh, there was no Sephora Alta back then right so we didn't have tutorials we didn't have anything to go by to to look at a certain standard there was of makeup beauty. counters in the mall but you can't afford that who could afford it in oh. in a community like we lived in? Oh, you could go you? to like thrifty or yes, <laughs> wet and wild section. Yeah, the wet and wild. Yeah, the drugstore makeup, which now it's like drugstore makeup is awesome, but yes, before that that expensive makeup was unattainable. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, um, 
and then uh, they had other programs that you know they they also had uh, as far as like art right you mentioned art program they did at some point they started an art programs uh, especially women that were more inclined artistically they consisted of ceramics they made dolls for underprivileged children uh they they did um all kinds of artistic things and they sold at certain little markets i mean obviously the women did not go out and sell them themselves but the people who came in and helped them um and supplied them with the supplies went out and sold their their creations and the money that they received they put it right back into um into purchasing new supplies raw materials awesome it's a really good outlet yeah definitely well let's get into the next section um like some of the volunteers, which same thing with the lady with the makeup. There was a couple other volunteers that were kind of notable. You mentioned junior leaguers in the 1960s. Um, what what it, exactly did they do? Uh, I don't know if they actually did or how long they did it for. I did read an article where it said that they came in and they toured Simple Brand and were impressed by by the location and the um, conditions for the women. And it was said that they were going to help be like mentors for women when they came home to possibly, I don't know, look for a job and to help the recidivism or the lack thereof to help them not recidivate back into the system. I didn't read if they were uh, successful or if they were in service, how long they were in service for but that was something that was definitely being talked about and might have been implied for a little while, for a time. And the one I thought it was interesting was in the 1970s, a cosmetic surgeon uh, by the name of Dr. Harry, I guess he also volunteered his services as a plastic surgeon to the ladies to pretty much boost her self-esteem for just various reasons. I and he was from Beverly Hills. I don't know. I guess Beverly Hills people just like Sybil, somehow they're like the only ones with resources probably still are. But <laughs> I mean, there was, if you didn't have the money, I mean, nobody was doing it. So um, it's awesome that he was able to come at first. It was kind of like weird, a plastic surgeon. Why were they going that route? But then um, some of the reasons why they got the plastic surgery were, you know, pretty interesting. So you want to share about that part? Yeah, it was pretty commendable. Um, I read some, I was reading an article where a woman stated that she was kind of leery about getting plastic surgery. Like, why is this man coming and offering us plastic surgery? Like, and I is thought he it was weird because it was like <laughs> 70s. Yes. Seven, I mean, you don't really think of plastic surgery before the 90s. I don't, maybe it's because of my age, but you don't really see it like as something that's just like a household name or something that's just done. No, it's normal now. Every You hear that so much now, but yeah, definitely. I, I mean, surgery has been around for a while, but what I'm saying, it's just, I, I guess it was only accessible for people in Beverly Hills. <laughs> for the resources. Yeah. Right. When the woman was super leery because she thought that maybe the doctor was going to be like um, using her as a guinea pig or something, uh-huh. but he was just volunteering his time and um the article mentions that they felt and i think it was like a sheriff or a deputy at civil brand that they interviewed he felt that a lot of the women 
got into crime or fell into crime or recidivated because they had low self-esteem. And so if you brought their self-esteem up, you know, by giving them a better look, if that that's what their issue was or their per, uh, perceived issue, then it was going to change them and change their life and maybe secure a, a husband or something of the, of the like. Right. And that's the part that was like, uh, <laughs> okay. But because it was very superficial, they were only focusing on self-esteem. But again, this is back in the 70s. So there was not much research on trauma or, I mean, there was mental health, but it just probably wasn't as much research as there is now. But in some ways, the types of surgery that he did, you know, were very helpful for some of the women. Yeah, some tattoo removals and like working on facial scars. Um, There was a woman mentioned who was in a car wreck. And her nose was smashed and the doctor fixed it. So I can imagine that that definitely improved the quality of life for those women who had those visible facial uh, scars and facial um, impurities, if you will. And I'm sure it helped their quality of life. Now, I don't know if they led, you know, more of a crime life or if they went straight and found their husbands or what that um, that information is not available, but it definitely it definitely changed their quality of life. I would believe it would. Because if, if it were me, I think that if I had something so hideous or something that I viewed as hideous on my face, that that kind of work would, you know, make me feel better and want to be in society. Yeah, unfortunately, there, who knows if they even got statistics on if it worked and or how long they didn't mention how long he worked with the ladies, you know, during the time the Institute was open. So we might not ever know anything changed, if that really even changed at all. True. um, We do want to now kind of talk about kind of notable women that were incarcerated there for the time. And again, remember, this is a county jail facility in LA. So it's not prison. Most of the time you're going to do less than a year. Maybe they're going in and out. I don't, you know, for the most part, just like any other county jail, they're fighting their case, any of that. So it's not like prison. It's it's short time. So, but during that short time, there was interesting <laughs> stories of why women went in there for various reasons. The human condition. Do you want to start off with the first one? Sure. Um, there was a woman... And this one, I don't know why I find it so funny because it's not funny. There was a 20 year old woman who um, was being held at Sipple Brand because uh, she was annoyed by her 31 year old uh, boyfriend's excessive eating habits. So she put uh, poison. She put she he poisoned she poisoned his food. She put this uh, castrol castrol bean inside a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And he ate it and he, you know, he, he got really sick. And once um, they found out the reason why he was sick, he was poisoned. And she was then taken to Sybil Brand. And can you imagine being so irritated with your man because he's eating too much that you're like, fuck this shit. I'm going to put some poison in your shit and get the, you know, you're going to learn the lesson by eating so much. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, that's really 
odd. But who knows the backstory of her or the relation? I don't know, but that's <laughs> that's uh, beyond something else. Well, I, I do have, you know, a 20-year-old in my house, and she sometimes doesn't always make the best decisions. Although, if she ever tries to poison me, I don't think it's going to be a good thing. <laughs> okay. <It's> not- <laughs> um, I did want to mention the next notable inmates would, would be some of the ladies that were at that time accused of the Manson family being in the Manson family and the murders during that time we there was a few different ones i mean we don't i don't know every single one of their names but they were they were also held at civil brown during the manson trial they were i was reading an article that was mentioning i think it was uh sorry guys she she was acting bizarre often looking up the sky like looking up to the ceiling and talking like to herself or to someone unseen, you know, person above her. And um, I think that the women were just kind of shell shocked because a lot of them were in there for, you know, petty crimes and prostitution and drug usage and to have something so uh, heinous as murder and the murder of the La Bianca family and Sharon Tate, an eight month old pregnant woman, a famous actress married to Roman Polanski. It was just, you know, it, it was pretty wild for them. Right. And one of them had a baby as well at Civil Brand. She was pregnant. She was a lookout during the murders. And she ended up giving birth at Civil Brand or the hospital, the county hospital where that building is being demolished as we speak. She gave birth there. And then after that, her son was taken into the system. Um, the Child Protective Services or whatever it was at the time. But I, I didn't know that. She was actually pregnant during that crime. Ironically, they were murdering a pregnant woman, which is really sad. So, yeah. I wonder what but, happened to her son or what ended up being of him. But I was reading somewhere that she she's out and um, she was living near her son or with her son. Yeah. So the lady's name was actually Lisa Kasabian? Linda Kasabian. Linda so she was the one that had a baby well incarcerated at Civil Brand. And then there was a couple other ladies, Susan Atkins or Lisa Atkins? Susan Atkins and then the Patricia uh, Krenwinkel. She was the one who was acting really bizarre and, and noted by um, women who were incarcerated with her. Okay. The really bizarre behavior of, you know, just looking up in the air and talking to nobody and, and stuff like that, which is pretty wild for people back then. Yeah. You can almost imagine the notoriety of the actual crime itself. And then to have these women who committed these brutal crimes and I'm all young, really young, petite, then women and commit these heinous crimes. It was something so probably bizarre and almost like a culture shock in the sense to probably the, the, the actual population of Sybil Brand which I imagine was probably a lot of um, mixed, but probably a lot of women of color, different different ethnicities and not just, you know, Caucasian. Yeah, I didn't get to see the stats of the women at the time. It'd be interesting to see the stats on what women were there. Because most of the women in that were 
mentioned in the articles, they didn't have like Latina last names. So I think that was mostly 60s, 70s. I don't know exactly the statistics, but probably in the earlier years, it wasn't maybe as prevalent. Who knows? We'll have to check the stats next time. But the other interesting story was because of LAC USC, the women and children's Ugh. hospital that is Ugh. currently being demolished. I posted this a couple days ago. Part of the hospital not connected to the Art Deco building, but way in the corner by itself, old mid-century building that is going to be demolished and turned into a psychiatric facility, which is interesting in itself. But there was a story where this woman that was also pregnant and she had been incarcerated at Sybil Brand, but they sent her there to have her baby. She she ended up trying to escape from the hospital, specifically <laughs> during labor, climbing down the fourth from the fourth floor. Yeah. Kathleen. Kathleen, that was her name. It didn't even, the article didn't go into if she got caught or anything else, um, but she was really bold to, in labor, trying to, she climbed out of the hospital fourth floor. She said, I got to get the fuck out. I don't yeah. blame her. But it's, it's funny because it's really common that a lot of people that are incarcerated that get sent to the hospital for whatever reason, like that's one way to try to escape during the trip to the hospital or at the hospital. I heard that a lot of times because it's more accessible as rather than escaping from the actual facility. I could see that. Who knows what was going through her mind? Yeah, so I thought that was interesting. So that building that's getting destroyed, she climbed up that building as, and somehow hopefully made it and didn't fall and kill the, herself or the baby or something. But yeah, that was, that was really interesting. And then the, the next one, um, you want to talk about this one with, you, you have a really good story on this one, the 1972 throwing the baby off the roof. Yeah. So there was this woman, um, I, I don't think it mentioned her name or her age. I, if I recall, she was in her twenties her boyfriend, her then boyfriend, she had a baby. Uh, her then boyfriend said that he did not want the baby anymore and to get rid of it. So the article is from the perspective of the neighbor, the downstairs, the downstairs neighbor from the apartment building that they lived in. He was having a party of some sort and had guests over and some kind of ruckus was made and he went upstairs to, for whatever reason, to see what was going on and he found the mother um pressing the baby up against her breast and looking like uh not to feed the child but almost suffocating the child so he snatched yeah it's pretty crazy he snatched her away uh, the baby away from the mother and took the baby downstairs and somehow in the process the mother came back and snatched the baby out of his arms which sent the whole party and she said some words like i need that child or give me that goddamn child and um the whole party was in a in an uproar because of what happened and she went fleeing up to the rooftop and the party went outside 
I guess to catch the baby because they could sense that that was what was going to happen. Um, I can't recall in the article if she said, I'm going to jump off the roof. I don't know if it said that, but they took, they, I, they took initiative and thought maybe this is what's going to happen. And someone else went after the mom and, and she indeed threw the child off the roof. However, a party goer caught the baby and then she then attempted to jump off herself. But the party member that went after her was able to subdue her until um, the police got there and then arrested her. Yeah, so that was really trippy. And I was I was thinking that, wow, like during this time, and this was in 1972 again, there was not much mental health. Maybe there was feelings of her not being able to, you know, be felt as man, no, low self-esteem. Well, that we could see that. There probably was so much more. There's trauma and things like that that would cause her to feel like she's not valued or the baby because he said that he doesn't want the baby. Very, very true. And I think a lot, a lot of the time, especially now, it's not so much an issue. But for many years, you know, the women ch- uh, killed their children, especially in infant ages under, you know, the age of like three, let's say, with undiagnosed postpartum depression. Okay. And we can't rule it out, obviously. This is 1972. There's no way to know. But I wouldn't be surprised, among with other socioeconomic issues that were happening, including low self-esteem, maybe a, a low IQ and, and not education, no resources, and then possibly being depressed postpartum. I mean, you can only imagine. I can only speak for myself as having children at a very young age with very limited um, resources how taxing it can be on your psyche and on your self-esteem and and everything let alone raising the child but uh someone said blatantly like get rid of the child and that was your only like um emotional anchor and you probably would feel very torn i had to look up the apartments and right there off vernon and when you look at the apartments on google map you could kind of imagine the scene in the 1970s of a baby thr- being thrown off the roof, a crowd of people at the bottom, but then the baby being caught. The baby's name was Nanny, which Nanny, I think it's a girl name. So hopefully Nanny is doing good and alive and maybe living. Flourishing. Yeah, I mean, she must be in her 40s, late 40s or mid 40s if she was born in the 70s. <laughs> yeah she'd be like um almost 50 yeah so i hope you're safe nanny and i hope everything went well after that for the mom as well like that sounds like a very traumatic experience in itself the boyfriend was it said in the article that the boyfriend was not there during the incident but or charged right which I doubt they would have because she's made the choice, but still, who knows? I hope it's the, they were able to, I don't know what would happen after that if they got back together, but it's still a very sad story. Very sad. Yeah. So the next um, one I'll bring up is going to be, I did, we, we did want to kind of mention there was a few people that did die at the facility, documented at least. I don't know if there's been many more that haven't been, but um, one of them was a suicide. 
you want to get into more details of what happened during the suicide of Trudy Wright in 1973? So in the article, it states that um, they found Trudy Wright. Uh, I think she was like in her 30s, 31. They found her um, by, her, uh, okay, her husband found her. Her husband found her. She had a husband. He worked for the city from what the article said. So she had, you know, socioeconomic uh, stability. Um, she, he found her holding the, his lifeless child, a lifeless 23-month-old son, so a, a, a lifeless two-year-old. And she was unconscious and near the brink of death, which ended up being from an overdose. Uh, she was then arrested and she was uh, placed at Civil Brand on suicide watch, which was supposed to be someone would check on him, her every 10 minutes. And also with suicide watches, usually, at least now we know that they strip away a lot of your clothing. There's nothing that you have access to in your cell or wherever you're being held where you can harm yourself. So, but somehow she was able to uh, get the pillowcases uh, of whatever pillows that were there and she hung herself. The same day she was arrested. Yeah, I mean it's kind of common to do hangings from bed sheets or things like that. From what I read from other places, it's the bed sheet thing, or I could see maybe she got other people's pillowcases or something. But she really probably was under high distress, being probably first time incarcerated, and it just kind of goes into this. I I rather die than you know, how do do my time and because she already probably knew, you know, she was gonna probably do a lot of time because of what she did with her kid. But it does probably tie back how old was the child? It was a baby? The baby was two twenty three months, so nearly two years old. So okay. but she she attempted suicide when she killed her child. She was not just under the influence, she tried to overdose on drugs. So she tried to take her own life initially. So she was already suicidal hence the suicide watch and that's exactly why there should have been more um i don't know what happened they the the guards must have just totally fucked up that night because she she was able to accumulate enough um bed sheets they say specifically pillowcases so she was enough uh able to accumulate enough pillowcases to hang herself and hang herself you have to re- well on suicide watch she was or no she was on suicide watch and who knows the setting of that because we just to uh paint a picture civil brand was dorms open dormitories it was with bunk beds and then they did have some single cells for people that had psychiatric issues or things like that so i'm thinking maybe she might have been in a single cell but if there was a dorm setting i'm sure maybe she asked around who knows who knows but I would have, I would go on a limb here and say that I'm pretty sure she was in a single cell of some sort because she was specifically there for suicide watch. And they mentioned that in the article, which, and they also mentioned that per their protocol, they were supposed to check on her every 10 minutes. (laughs) And I can't see how one accumulating and ripping, you know, the ripping motion of all those pillowcases or how she got all those pillowcases. That's a lot of checking every 10 minutes. Hmm. That's my point. They couldn't have been because between the pillowcases and the actual, you know, tying it up and hanging yourself. And not to mention, it's not from a very far place that she's hanging herself. So that's going to take extra longer to die 
like her neck didn't break. It would have just been sitting there until she was completely asphyxiated and lost, you know, in consciousness and, 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 or went unconscious and, and died. So she had to have been there for quite a while. And I imagine that not only was it negligence on the deputy's part, but probably they, and again, I'm going on a limb that they probably encourage shit like this. Like there, you know, she would have been deemed a baby killer. They probably would have said pretty nasty things to her and she already attempted it before. So they already knew where her mind was on uh, committing suicide. So again, that's strictly my opinion. I have no facts for that part. I can't put words in the deputy's mouth. However, I think that it was probably encouraged and um, ignored and she was ignored purposefully because they knew she was going to attempt it again and they wanted her to be successful. Okay. And then, so yeah, that, that, that was in 1973, right? So let's go to 1975. So this one's interesting with this interesting nurse lady. It's a little complicated. I read the article a bunch of times over again because it seems like there might have been two children involved. So there was, um, what is her name? Norma. She was a nurse at our favorite hospital. Kaiser. Oh, she was at Kaiser? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, not our favorite hospital. Maybe someone's favorite hospital. It was a <laughs> <family> hospital. <laughs> and she killed uh, Catherine Miramontes and took her baby. Somehow alerted... There was some kind of suspicion a couple weeks later when a a separate couple went in, and I believe the last name was Duarte. They went in to deliver a child, and when she delivered the child, no doctor, just herself, and after the child was delivered, she presented a fetus to them and said that the baby had died. So they left the hospital without having a child. It also stated, um, the article stated that she went and took that child who was actually alive and was um, delivered alive. She took the child and registered the child as her own, which probably prompted them. All the whole situation seemed absurd and it probably prompted them to check in at her house where they found an eight month old baby, Catherine Miramontes's baby alive and taken care of and well, not, not, you know, malnourished or hurt or anything, but she's over there, you know, killing and stealing for babies. Yeah. I thought it was the opposite where she- the killing of the one where she, the C-section one, mm-hmm. like, but she, I thought she already had the other baby that she had delivered and told the couple that it was dead and she delivered and registered it. And then she killed this last one. It could have been, it could be all the way around. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, like I said, I read it a couple of times. Nonetheless, there was an eight month old and a woman was killed and baby took it out cesarean section and a family lied to Very and del- cool. like who does that and she must have been not right for whatever reason she wanted her own baby but the way she was going about it was horrible like who does that she was older too not old enough like i i know people she's 44 and i've known people that have babies that age um but who we don't know parent, you know so but yeah in her mind that that you know if she couldn't, it was that desperate to do that. I mean, that's always, she was, that's beyond desperate. To yeah. Kill or forcefully pull out a baby from a pregnant woman or lie to a family and saying that your baby's dead. And then she and has this was, to this hospital. So 
because she worked there as a nurse so that's even worse yes and that's what i was going to say we've heard time and time again about women who do this kind of these things these um heinous murders uh via cesarean uh, section take out these babies from the women and try to raise them for as long as they're able to before they're you know caught on and we hear about them and oftentimes there's you know some major abuse going on and lower education socioeconomic background um even the woman who was just uh that number 45 executed right before he exit um exited the presidency same kind of thing with her and she had a lot of like abuse in her past while i we can't speculate we don't know if this nurse had abuse in her past however she was educated enough to become a nurse and definitely knew right from wrong and took a hippocratic oath you know to to not to help instead of to harm so it's pretty it's pretty sad and pretty crazy that was probably before nursing ethics <laughs> yeah who knows so another thing that is interesting was during the late 70s there was a lot of gender discrimination and of course probably at its worst um towards women you know that was unconstitutional and i i, I reread some of the articles basically when they would get punished for an infraction you know breaking a rule or something like that or even not breaking the rule they'll get treated badly um no contact with their children the punishment was really harsh um they get you know their materials taken away and you know like books and crafts or whatever they did so it was they were treated really harsh for things that were didn't constitute that so there was a during that time it, it was um just really challenging during that time with for the women that were there yes um to speak more about that, uh, also a lot of the women who were there um, awaiting trial were treated differently than the women who were doing their time and um, oftentimes not having any privileges. Uh, they weren't allowed to see their children at visiting or touch at, or have reading material until um, there was a lawsuit brought about because of these indignities and un uh, like these indignities that were against their constitutional rights and thank goodness for that. It's, it's pretty sad that these women were probably treated worse than the men. And we have to remember that women, you know, we're, we're the ones that have children and can you imagine being in jail for a couple months and having your child and wanting to see your child and hold your child and you can't even see them or raise them or connect with them? I can't imagine it. It's 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 a really scary thought. Right. So that like definitely kind of carried on to I think there's a couple of lawsuits. We're gonna talk now about a lot of the controversies, even though some of the things we mentioned are very controversial, but there was a lot of like actual um, lawsuits that happened during the a period of time at, at, towards civil brand for various things. Um, the first one that the first one that was documented was in 1967. There was a $500,000 lawsuit against the sheriff for a woman that also passed away at Civil Brand because she had a medical condition 
couldn't breathe, heart problems. They didn't care to even help her with that or didn't care that she had that condition or put her in a hospital unit or anything. So she ended up pretty much dying. And the lawsuit was brought up by um, her sons, her surviving sons and their, uh, their caregiver who had custody over them. And can you imagine? I mean, we see it time and time again, even to this day, you know, certain people are treated differently and discriminated against by cops. And you tell them you can't breathe and what do they do? You know, they, they don't care. And I'm sure she felt she had no rights. And the reason she went into prison or the reason she was arrested in the first place is that she got in an argument with someone and supposedly pulled a gun on the person she was arguing with. But she told them time and time again that she needed medication and she needed her breathing app- uh, CPAP and um, something similar to that. And they just ignored her and she literally died the same day she was arrested. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, we, we hear that all the time as far as the medical care in the jails and prisons has not ever been great until lawsuits pretty much kind of have to regulate some of these institutions to better the conditions and actually treat the people that are living there, the inmates, um, properly despite the crime or whatnot, they still have the right to medical care and medical access. So I am not surprised in the 70s, they just did not care at all. So uh, back to the, as far as the conditions in in 77, they, the judge did rule against uh, the constitutional rights of the women being treated unfairly because there was no medical, no psychiatric care, and again, no, not being able to see their children or not allowed. So they ended up getting these rights once a judge ruled. Okay, so yeah, yeah. they get a lawsuit going on for that as well. How much so, and like how, how much was budgeted for each each thing, we don't know. Mm-hmm. And again, if you read the articles in any time that they interviewed a formerly incarcerated woman at Civil Brand, they had nothing nice to say about their experience um but the judge did rule for them in favor of them saying what them being held without medical being held without psychiatric help for you know the multiple attempted suicides that happened there and uh i would just like to mention really quickly that even though we've only had a couple documented deaths that we've read about we're pretty certain there was multiple deaths there had to have been I mean, there, there is, even at Disneyland, it's just, you know, people die, people live, and that's just part of life. But we were only able to find a couple. Yeah, it wasn't like, again, it's, it's, this is based on just articles as far as that, that part. Maybe the LA Sheriff's Department has documents of how many people actually die in their records, but that we weren't we didn't have access to those records. So an actual correct number, we're, we don't know, but from what the newspapers say was about a few that I that I know. There's probably more that maybe we missed in other newspapers, but L, as far as LA Times, there was a few. And then uh, I did want to bring up the some of the unfairness too was, was with the work furlough program. So the men were able to get the work furlough program, which 
meant that they would um, do jail time on weekends and then work. They would be released during the week, go to work, and then do their weekend time in jail. Um, it was for people, obviously, low level, more petty crimes, um, more trust. There was trust there. So the men, so the men that were able to qualify for that got that opportunity. But they didn't initially want to let the women do that program. Because, and for no reason. Right. Uh, <laughs> no good. And the judge ruled against them, saying that, it, you know, it's unconstitutional, it's discrimination. Um, but they also went on to mention, and what this is in the 70s, right? So they went on to mention that a lot of these women who were being jailed in civil brand didn't have proper jobs. They were there because of drug offenses and uh, prostitution. And if you didn't have a proper job, you weren't allowed to, you were disqualified immediately for the, the job working the furlough program because you had to have a documented job and your employer had to be okay with you coming. And so um, they admit there's no reason why women shouldn't be able to. And that's why they rolled in favor of the women. However, women were still being looked at as if their, um, as their jobs were not as meaningful and as if, you know, they weren't having jobs and, and they were just, their jobs were prostitution, basically, and drugs. Yeah, I mean, of course, it, again, it's a different era. And, of course, women were already working at that time, but it still wasn't as normalized as it is now. So you could imagine that it was more challenging. And then um, in the 80s, there was an interesting class action lawsuit with your famous feminist attorney. Gloria Allred. Yeah, I was surprised to hear her name. I mean, you always hear her name with, with type of feminine issues, but um, I, I didn't expect to hear her name. But her the, the issue she fought was really um, important. Yes, women were women who were incarcerated at Civil Brand. Anytime they went to the hospital for any medical need, specifically they mentioned uh, delivering babies because you can imagine that was something that was rampant. You know, we're women, we can get impregnated and that happened often. Uh, a lot of the time they go to the hospital and during labor, they're handcuffed to the bed. Uh -huh. So can you imagine in this time of giving birth? I mean, I don't know if you can imagine, but you can try to imagine giving birth and being handcuffed to a bed. What kind of feeling of, does that give you? Like how, like what, what does that do to your mind? I don't know. So Gloria Allred fought. Um, it started, they started the class action suit, I want to say initially in 1980. And at that time, the deputies or the sheriffs, they started experimenting and allowing patients that went in for various reasons medically not to be handcuffed to see like what would happen if, you know, if the prisoners would rebel or, or not. But eventually they won the class action lawsuit in 1984, four years later, because there was a, an incarcerated woman who had uh, uterine cancer and could not deliver or should not be able to deliver vaginally due to the cancer and was scheduled for a C-section. However, when the day came, they couldn't find the key to unlock her from the oh, handcuffs. Ridiculous is that. Right. So she had to deliver vaginally, which was very dangerous, obviously, for because of the cancer. So um 
Thank goodness for that. Thank goodness, goodness for Goya Allred. Yeah, but I did. I think in CDCR they barely they were still chaining, or even across the country they were still chaining women um, while giving labor. I don't. I don't think that stopped in other places. So I can only speak for myself, and I didn't mean to cut you off. When I was um, doing internship and in nursing on labor delivery. I've seen many women who came from county and that were handcuffed to their beds and we weren't allowed to talk to them more. So, I mean, you can ask them like their, you get their vitals and you have to tell them the meds that you're taking and so forth and so on, but you can't really talk to them and ask, you know, more than that. It, it was really bizarre to see this. And there's yeah. a sheriff like sitting in the room with them. Yeah, who knows if really things change or maybe they stopped doing it for a little while and then started again. And, you know, I think people tend to want to forget. That, Pick and choose. Yeah. And, you know, there's a new crowd of people working in these places and they choose not to follow the protocol. So, but I do know up to this day, there has been pretty much chained um, women giving birth so then we'll move on to the next part because a, a lot of the women like we mentioned earlier that were incarcerated for the most part petty crimes for uh, drug use and there's prostitution which was a very common thing and according to like actually statistics with crime rates with women a lot of times women crimes are usually going to be um, like some kind of fraud or like um, fraud as far as like I don't want to say bad checks because nobody writes bad checks anymore but like credit card fraud type of stuff or like petty things basically and if it is a more serious crime according to statistics it's usually a man is involved in the case um, usually there's something going on where they get in trouble well they made the choice to commit the crime yes but there's usually some kind of either a partner component or somebody, a male figure involved with the women in the, as far as the, with the crime. It's very common that that happens, but obviously prostitution <coughs> is what, you know, it's still, I think it's now they changed the, the law for prostitution. That changed now, every, a lot of things, but at the time, obviously prostitution was a crime. Even just the word prostitution has changed now to what it is, what we see of now, uh, how it's labeled now. But the words that they were using during these time with prostitution, hookers, that that was a common theme in, in you know, the stories that we were reading. But obviously now we know that we're, we're more mindful of, you know, using words like sex worker or even human tra trafficking victims because a lot of these people are underage. So, and then it, we're trying not to criminalize it as much as opposed to getting more help. And I did read one article where they were trying to get help for some of these ladies in, in the way they kind of knew at the time. Um, they they called it prostitutes anonymous, which I, I feel like prostitutes are very derogatory. But at the time, that was the word they were using. And this was in 87. So they were they started this prostitute anonymous to try to eradicate the lifestyle addiction of what you know these women that they were saying um that they were addicted to lifestyle because it was easy money 
at the time to them they, they were saying you know some women were making like a lot of money at the time like two thousand dollars a week or I don't know if it was a week or a day, but it was a lot of money for the time. So that was a good step in a sense to be able to have these programs to help the women. And it was just barely touching the surface, right? Like a lifestyle addiction. And I could see that part because I was telling Sabrina, there's another YouTube channel called Soft White Underbelly. And a lot of, it's very popular. I'm pretty sure a lot of you guys heard of it. He interviews women on Skid Row or Figueroa. And he, and he listens to their stories. And um, most of the, the women, almost like 90% of the women say that obviously they come from trauma backgrounds. And they did mention that in the article that a lot of the women came from very difficult backgrounds. So I'm glad they pointed that out. But a couple of the, of the women and the people that, you know, quote unquote pimps, um, did mention that they were addicted to the lifestyle as well. It doesn't mean that there was not a trauma or anything, but they're, they're, the lifestyle, because it was easy money, you're your own boss, um, some, the glamour part of it in some ways, because some, some, some of them glamorize it. But at the end of the day, it, it's not anything anybody wants to do per se. Even them themselves were saying that's not something they, they want to do. But then some said that it was an addiction as well. So I could see how in this case with this article with the process anonymous, how they mentioned addiction of that lifestyle. What are your thoughts about that? Unfortunately, I haven't listened to the podcast that you're referring to, but I need to. Uh, as far as the article is concerned, it was kind of interesting. This prostitute anonymous, the specific woman that they um, interviewed she wasn't the the prostitute on Figueroa. She was more like a madam, a madam who who was quoted as saying that she had like seven cars and she made like easily $2,000 a day. So she's kind of like a pimp. Like even an though escort she's, or like an escort herself or she ran a group of women? Like a bordello. She ran what she called a okay. bordello. Mm-hmm. So she's making $2,000 a day, she's saying, you know, off other women, maybe even herself. So she was looking at it more as a lifestyle change, but I don't think that she, she was talking about the addiction as far as the lifestyle, but not so much as far as the reason why people initially get into it, which is probably addiction on substance abuse and or abusive um, relationships mm-hmm. and childhood trauma. So right. she's just touching on like the fast lifestyle and the right. money and the cars. Yeah. So what, while that would be helpful for some people, it wouldn't be for other because it you'd have to first knock down the first step, which is the substance abuse and the trauma before you can get to the lifestyle. And I would go even further to say that not everyone wants to be prostituting or wants to do sex work even now. It's just you don't know probably a lot of the women who are, you know, have trauma or substance abuse they don't know how to get out of it or they're stuck or they don't make, make enough money. Mm -hmm. This woman interviewed, she loved the the lifestyle. She loved it. And that's why she was coming up with this, you know, group to help support getting out of the lifestyle. So it was, it was helpful for some, but I think is it's not a reality for the majority. Right. But see in the, in the interviews now with the guy, the the pimps and if she was a madam 
the pimps love the lifestyle because they're yeah. money from the women. And if they're the old school ones, they still have the old school style because there's various kinds. Um, and they love that glamorous, the cars, the clothes, the events and all that stuff. And then they get they get all the money from the women. So I could see and to them, they were saying they love the the game, they call it the game. They love the game. Um, so I could see why this lady was probably in that same category. But even the, the men that were saying, you know, we love the game, we love the lifestyle, they have trauma, these men, or they lived very harsh childhoods. They all said their story and it's not a normal childhood. So it's, it makes sense where they ended up in this lifestyle as, you know, the game being pimps and stuff like that, or being um, exploiters, I would say more of women rather than that word pimp, which I stopped, I don't like to use myself personally. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, society tends to glamorize that word. But yeah, it was interesting how how that group started. I And I think now I haven't got, I know that there are organizations that do help women now to try to get out of that lifestyle. It's probably way more advanced than this prostitute anonymous. Hopefully there is more of that help now because, but you know, it's a start. This was 1987. So the next uh, area is keeping in mind that, you know, transgender women where this was a really, you know, there's still problems to this day with transgender women in the prisons to this day. Remember this county jail, but to this day, there's issues with that. Now county jail, there's a separate uh, unit for transgender women I believe gay males, I, yeah, in the men's central jail. There's like a specific unit for that. But during this time, talk about this transgender woman. Very sad case. Um, I believe she was picked up for drugs of some sort. Drug, she had drugs on her. So she was picked up and taken to Sybil Brand in a waiting trial. And two fucking weeks later somehow for some reason they do a medical exam on, on her and they decide that because she um, presents with partial male genitalia that she needs to go to the men's jail and um she was taken to the men's jail and pleading not to go because she's a woman she had breast she didn't finish her um full transformation surgery uh and she speaks on it because it's really expensive from my understanding, she had breasts, no scrotum, and she just had a penis. This is 1993, by the way. Yes, 93. They took her to oh, the men. 92, yes, exactly. And um, they took her to the men's uh, jail, the men's jail, and she was assaulted and beat up. And so she filed a lawsuit uh, against you know the the sheriffs and you know, for being assaulted and being placed in a place where she could possibly die and be killed. To this day, men, especially men incarcerated, even men out here, struggle with um, their homophobia. And it's sometimes it's just minute. It's just not, it's not huge. Like, oh, we hate gay people. They say, oh, I know a gay person. I don't want a gay person as long as they don't hit on me. We don't want to assume every single guy, but no, not every single guy. Sorry, guys, but I, I say it's something that they still struggle to to this day, and I think it's that prison atmosphere where you have to be a man, you have to be a man, and and out here I don't think that we have so much of a problem, especially in like maybe 
like the metropolitan areas like Los, Los Angeles because everyone has like not everyone but so many people are gender fluid and have their own sexuality that are not even connected with you know their presenting gender at birth and it's not even an issue out here people especially with the younger generations just let people live let people be it doesn't matter people are just people but in prison it's still stuck in those old days so that poor woman was assaulted and she filed a lawsuit i don't recall reading if she won the lawsuit but she was taken back to civil brand at some point yeah it was probably really ongoing so but you know that was the beginning of this of issues like that and almost to, towards the end of will be end of civil brand right but yeah and then you said that there was in, in 1993 they started kind of letting women out there's a lot of budget cuts it was kind of looking like you know it wasn't as effective to them you know so they're letting people out yeah due to budget cuts they were letting um uh 50 women in off in one day some um having like a couple days left on their uh imposed sentence some a couple months before and these were also you know not women that had felonies that were in prison these are women who were doing short time for like we said multiple times prostitution drugs petty theft and so forth and they were let go they were let go early due to budget cuts yeah and then it finally closed in 97 it did get damaged in 94 with the northwood earthquake the northwood one and i guess it was faulty i don't know what happened but they closed it in 97 finally i guess did, did they give like a specific reason why they just shut it down they just said that um, due to major um, major damage uh, sustained during the 1994 Northridge earthquake that uh, they had to shut down the Institute. So you can only imagine, especially where it's located, that it really shook the foundations to its core, literally and figuratively. Maybe not the earthquake, you know, literally, uh, figuratively, but it was broken in, in some sense to its core where it was just not um, feasible to continue to house women there. Right. And I believe so now looking at it is when they built Twin Towers. So they probably just figured um, we're going to put all the women in Twin Towers. And I think they did for a few years because Twin Towers was built around the same time, either that year or the year later, they it was built. And then the women were there for a while until they finally were transferred to the Linwood Detention Center, where they currently are now. So the LA County Jail for women is at Linwood. They did have a different, um, almost like an honor ranch in Lancaster. Um, there was something there during a certain period of time, but that didn't really last long. I think they closed that down as well. So now currently they're in, they're in Linwood. Okay, so uh, so we, we really dug into the history of this place. Now, another part of it is the paranormal side. And, you know, Sabrina was able to go in and investigate. Um, you want to say 100 years ago, because that's your favorite. <laughs> it was about... <laughs> It was about 10 years ago. So she's going to share her experience and um, in actually investigating. I'm really curious, like, 
how who chose the place or how did you guys get in did you guys have to pay like how did it go how did that go about well um so 10 years invest- ago was 2000 what for you during that time uh, it was like 2010 2011 ish that so like around a, about a decade ago okay. give or take a year or two um i was on a paranormal group i was a member of a paranormal group just like the ones you see when you watch ghost hunters or ghost adventures well ghost adventures isn't like a they're a team but they're more not like a team so let's say ghost adventure or ghost hunters the old original show that started it all i was on a team uh i went with probably five team members in a group of probably 40 in total multiple um teams so my team uh, which was Harper Area Paranormal at the time. Go ahead and try to look it up. There's nothing there anymore. I try to look that up and get, <laughs> so I could give you guys pictures or, or videos. Documents on per- yeah, um, I didn't document anything back then. You know, I, I was know the- how sad. I would have loved to see that. I know. And I have a couple photos of standing out in front with my team members and stuff like that. I have a couple of those. And I just remember driving there and not me personally driving, driving in the back seat with my team, pulling up. And it looked very, um, it, it didn't look like much. It's not, and me, I have, I have been to a few prisons um, in the state of California. I'll just go on and say that. And it didn't look like a prison. Yeah, I wanted to interject on that. Like the, the architectural style of this place is not very significant it's not even funky mid-century which I if it had some weird 1960s stuff going on it's just very institutional looking it's not anything as significant as far as that part on the outside the inside a little bit different but so you know for you 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 were going in the dark so you when you got I did I did one of our friend teams uh they set up the investigation with the sheriffs how the liaison who i i mean i know the team who did it but i don't know who they spoke to and how they were able to set that up of course there's always a fee at least that's how it used to be back in the day you know um you would set uh uh set up an investigation at a opposed uh, a haunted location and there would be a flat rate and usually you would pay a portion. So let's say it's a thousand dollars and each person pays like twenty dollars. I'm just giving you a for instance, you know, whatever it needed. No, because I don't know. I just feel like the sheriffs would deny something like that. I don't know why. But I guess they wanted the money. I don't know. You know, it's really hard to say because in the paranormal community, there's a lot of um of of talk that the investigation was supposed to be hush hush and no one was supposed to know about it. No one was supposed to post pictures about it. And if they were, they weren't supposed to say where where we were at. Now, I wasn't told anything. I didn't file, uh, sign any kind of a disclosure or anything like that when I got there. There was somebody who walked with us when we initially got in, told us where we could go, which was we had the run of the entire place, um, and just told us to be careful because there was flooding in, like, the basement. And um, not flooding, like, up to your waist, but definitely, like, your shoes getting wet and just to be careful and that was basically it and again this is 10 years ago you guys 10 years ago and lots of things that happened to me in the in in the 10 years so i have you know the memories but not everything's like crystal clear but i do remember walking in and there's these two big um like 
where the main door would be, where there would be like an electrical door where they let new cars come in or like a Sally port, what they would call it. And we took a picture in front of that and, you know, laughed and we were all very excited because it was all very exciting to go on an investigation to go talk to ghosts. And um, you get in and the place is massive. It's cold. It's dark. It's rank. Um, immediately, my spidey senses were going bananas. I kept getting a lot of feeling like someone was saying mom. So I'm a mom. I have m- four children. So I didn't know if someone was, I get that often. I would like to, you know, state for the record that when I go on investigations, a lot of the time in my mind, I hear mom. So um, I don't know if they're looking at me as a mom or they're trying to express. And then when I say they, I mean spirits are expressing that they were moms. Um, Immediately, cold spots, EVPs, um, electrical voice phenomena. And I'm sure you guys know what an evp is not everybody well we can break it down on another day but an evp you know electric voice phenomena google it and then you'll be good thumbs up um we're getting all kinds of stuff and hits and we grab out our ghost box and we make communication i don't remember everything that was said but it definitely had a very um heavy not dark, but heavy sense about it, sad, very sad, a lot of mom coming to my head. And at some point, we went from like the gym area to the, there was cells, there was actual cells. We went to the individual cells, probably like what we brought up earlier with someone that was having some kind of psychiatric issue. Uh Um, That's where they might have been held. Um, and they look just like how you would imagine in, in like a movie, you know, with the big heavy metal doors that would slam and there's two metal slabs that are like bolted onto the wall with a metal toilet and like this random metal tray that I guess is supposed to be like a desk, like yeah. coming out of the wall. And I remember being there with um, my team and other people. And we're investigating, goofing around, because you goof around any kind of investigation, because that's just like, what's the point of not, you know, being so serious? We're serious and then goofy. But we're goofing around and they're closing the door in and having people take pictures of them locked in. And me, from my perspective, who have a long history with incarceration, not personally myself, but with loved ones, and um, I felt very sad because I sat there on the bunk. And there's just this tiny little square-ish area where you, like, live. And you could put your foot out and nearly hit the wall. And you could, you know, lay down flat. And then there's somebody, like, directly above you. Not even that many feet directly above you. The toilet, you're completely exposed. And it just really hit home for me because of, you know, my my perspective and what I had gone through with my loved ones who um, were part of uh, incarceration. So I remember getting teared up and it was really emotional for me. And also the place was definitely um, what I'd like to say is like calling to me. So I'm connecting with it on another level that not everyone can connect with because not everyone has those kind of, I don't want to say that I'm psychic or that I have some kind of mediumship. I'm just saying that I was connected to the place. Definitely. I also know a couple, uh, family members that were there. I don't know what years, and they're not no longer alive. I cannot ask them. 
and I don't remember if they told me or a story was being told about them, about them being in there. And, but so it was very personal going in there, whereas it wasn't for everyone else. We went to the basement and it was indeed flooded. It was gross. You see the kitchens, you see where they sat to eat. And when you're sitting there and you're um, conducting an investigation, we ask questions like, you know, what year is it? Because we want to see if you can connect with the spirit. And then we, if we are connecting, you may say like, what was your name? Why were you here? And you just sit there and you try to put yourself into the shoes of that woman who was sitting there in that uniform or orderly looking gel um, issued uniform, eating slop and just thinking about how it would feel to be there. And the hopelessness, there was a lot of sadness and hopelessness. And I also would like to mention, we went to one room and this stick stands out in my mind pretty well. Um, it was a, some sort of psychiatric room or doctor's room. And there was files upon files upon files opened, closed, scattered throughout the room. Of course. You could see everyone's, um, you know, like, HIPAA was not was not being you know uh, used in in this room at all. There was writings and sketchings on the wall. There was sketches that I remember picking up out of the files and looking at them because <clears throat> the sheriff said we could do whatever we want. We didn't have any restrictions. And um, at this point, How ten many years ago, all went total. Um, total probably like forty, maybe 45, 40, 40, 50. Okay, so there's quite a lot of people in there. Yeah, but not at one time. Or yes, at one time, but separately. It was big enough where a normal investigation, you break off into little groups because it would be impossible to conduct a paranormal investigation with that number of people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, just really crazy sketches. Um, so you can only imagine that this is like their their medical documentation of their what what's going on with this person and it was just left there and left there for everyone to look at and some people were ridiculing it and some people were looking at it like in <clears throat> like in I don't want to say in awe but just like they'd never seen anything like that before and when you're not exposed and you're not working in certain careers that have you exposed to mental health issues or incarcerations or any kind of institute of any sort, that stuff can be kind of alarming. You're kind of in your bubble. And so people were pretty like, wow, this is pretty crazy that this stuff happened here. So it was like art therapy to stuff or why, why sketches? I don't remember, like it didn't say on it what, what it was for. <clears throat> My only guess, it was kind of like when you, yeah, like an art therapy, it almost put me in the mind of like being a child and a child has some kind of trauma and they tell the child to draw a picture. Mm -hmm. That's what it felt like. And um, they were pretty dark drawings. And of course uh, on the wall, it said like, fuck you. It said, you know, hell or devil and really, you know, dark uh drawings all over the place and sayings and and what you would expect but it, it's something to see just boxes of files and just so littered about did, was the <clears throat> investigation chosen to be there just because it's assumed that there will be paranormal activity at a jail or prison 
I, I would say yes. I, I can't say for the person who set up the investigation himself, um, but I would say that that's a good, uh, a, a good conclusion that any place, a hospital, a prison, a mental institution, those are all ideal locations for a paranormal investigator because you're going to have a lot of suffering and death. Yeah. And not that paranormal investigators want suffering, but um, the idea, again, it's a pseudoscience, is that people that did not have a good life are likely or confused or likely to stay behind wittingly or unwittingly. And you are, as a paranormal investigator, more likely to um, have uh, communication with, with a spirit uh, versus a happy spirit that, you know, has moved on. Yeah, interesting. Um, I did watch a couple of YouTube videos of people in there. Uh, I think in the last 10 years, they also used it a lot for filming and TV shows and movies, but they also used it for students in cinematography classes at different universities that would come and practice, you know, filming scenes in, in the place. Um, there was one in particular, the New York Film Academy. I think. Oh, interesting. Yeah, there was a couple of students that um, <clears throat> they were with their class shooting a scene and they ended up vlogging, walking around freely. There's no, again, like you said, no rules, just walking around freely. And they did go to the basement where um, you mentioned it was flooded. And uh, it was, uh, there was a couple of rooms that I guess uh, pigeons must have made their way in. Oh, yeah, there's bats in there. There's pigeons. Yeah, there's, you know, poor pigeons. I mean, it's gross how they, you know, all the poop and everything and like dead animal carcasses just from pigeons living in there, probably living in there, you know, being left alone. There was a lot of that type of did. So I did see, I think there was another video where another girl talked about Sybil Brand. And I think she said that she talked about the flooding. There was some kind of flooding maybe around the time that you mentioned. I'm not sure if it was due to rain or a broken pipe or something, but um, I guess there was that, some damage from that. And um, it was also mentioned that in 2019, they stopped letting people film there. And right now, I guess it's awaiting demolition and rebuilding, apparently. Mm -hmm. so Did they mention what they- was the last time they were letting people in there to film. What are they building? I'm the location. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. It'd be interesting to find out. But I mean, just like the hospital being demoed recently, who knows if that's going to take another 10 years. But I guess maybe it could be since it's part of the sheriff's department, they might be something related to them. But it'd be interesting would make to sense. find out more about it. I'm sure there's records out there that are seeing what the project or that they're trying to get so it's pretty cool that we're talking about this now because eventually it might not it might not be there at all because they're yeah they're demolishing it and it's not going to be used for film or tv or students anymore at all yeah so you know it's like documentation yeah it's a good time to start you know to talk about it and the girl that did the youtube channel she she talked about it about two months ago which I was like, uh, it was it was good too that she brought that up that you know that they're demolishing it. So we'll see, we'll see what they end up doing it, what doing with it. But I mean, I think you know overall, we you know just to wrap it up. Um, anything else before we end about the paranormal? 
as far as like your would you say that it was a it was definitely an active location um i think everyone that went felt that they got their money's worth and they had an experience there um again ideally for an investigator any place that has a large amount of people that are stuck there um and there's you know they're suffering or confusion there it's it's going to be ideal for a paranormal investigator even though it may sound wrong i know it probably sounds really wrong but in, in a as a paranormal perspectives uh you know their point of view going into let's say um a happy home where a family uh raised two kids and those kids went on to be successful and then the parent dies there there might be you know activity but more than likely they probably moved on it's hard to say because again like i said and i don't want to sound like a broken record it's all pseudoscience we don't have any kind of uh, scientific way of really measuring it or studying it at this point at least not where we know about it who knows what you know cia fbi is doing who knows but with that said it was an active location we got our money's worth and it's sad it's a really sad place and as a mom and a woman i felt really connected to it and a, a mom and a woman that has long um a long experience or um with incarceration personally it was even even worse it's it's an active location and hopefully whatever they build, they build it for the community. Yeah. And something to help towards the community. Right. And we were talking about towards also before we wrap it up, and I know we've been on for a while. So we just <laughs> say that uh, the the fact of incarcerated women is not really highlighted as much. We don't know too much about it. We do a little bit more now that there's been a lot of formerly incarcerated women that have been out and started to gather with people that they were incarcerated with to advocate, to bring more light to the issues that women have in prisons and jails. But just through time, it, it hasn't been as much as what's highlighted for men. Um, and it, it should be for both. Um, so it, this, that's you know another reason we wanted to you know highlight this place that's not there anymore because you know, we don't hear about all these stories and, and things that happen at some of these institutions for women, in this case, Sybil Brand. So that's just my take on it. I think it's important to remember some of those stories and some of those places. Definitely, definitely. Women are always overlooked or um, women out here that have relationships or, or have um, children, husbands, uh family members that are incarcerated they advocate for their their men women advocate for their men they take care of the family out here but when a woman's incarcerated um they really don't have many people advocating for them if anything they're just searching for someone to take care of their children while they're incarcerated um not everyone but i'm i'm just you know generalizing here it's a different dynamic and because it's a different dynamic and um they suffer a lot more and they don't have as much uh light shown to the, the struggles that they may have they don't even get the mass amount of, of visiting that a, a male uh, prison would get and so Sybil brand it's the same thing women women who um committed crimes for various reasons and you never really get to hear about them 
it's it's never a highlight or a big topic. So yeah, that's one of the, you know, another reason to kind of do this part of the podcast, even though, again, many people might not have heard of this place. Now you do know about this place. But uh, just thank you for listening. I, you know, if you want to check us out individually on Instagram, my Instagram um, name is swapme underscore chronicles, just like it sounds, swapme underscore chronicles. Um, I post very often history of different places, buildings, you know, events. So definitely check us out, check me out. And then Sabrina has her new page. It's observing underscore spooks underscore and other vices as one word and it's under construction um it's a new i previous i still have my personal page but that's where all my stuff's at so i'm putting more content in um weekly daily and just at at my leisure if you will uh i also have a tiktok uh a tiktok account and i think it's sabrina the grown-up witch at Sabrina the Grown Up Witch, and you can see some of my my recent adventures. Um, and I just wanted to also say thank you for listening. And please, uh, in the comments, if you have any questions or any suggestions or something you want to uh, suggest that we take a, a look at, and please leave it. We'd love to hear what you have to say. And thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you.